2: and that consequently,
1: this country is at war with Germany. Well, you're frightened. Frightened, you get the bombs all round, you think you can't keep on missing, you you turn next, you used to feel this way. But thank God, we're here to tell the tale.
3: Almost 30,000 people were killed and 130,000 injured in German bomb and missile attacks on London during the Second World War. This is the story of four Irish women who, by reason of birth or unemployment at home, found themselves living in the city during the conflict. We're on number 12 platform at Waterloo Station. One of the ten big metropolitan stations that are engaged today on the evacuation of London's school children. When our number 12 platform, the train. Maureen Foley was 12 when the war started. Her parents had emigrated to London from Waterford in the 20s in search of work. When her father died in 1930, her mother went to work as a housekeeper in Chelsea, where they lived in a council flat. At the start of the war, along with thousands of other children in the city, she was evacuated to the East Coast and later to Wales. Her mother stayed with her, finding work as a billet woman in charge of the evacuees. They both moved back to London in the autumn of 1942.
4: Yes, it was a very fine day, actually, Uh, (laughs) which was good. And uh, we were all very, very upset. We knew we were going down to Wales. And a lot of the billet ladies had told the children some weird stories about the minors, and that the the, uh, that the children would be in, in in terrible living conditions. And um, the children were nervous. They were very nervous.
3: Mary Fahey from Tipperary Town was only 14 when she went to London in 1934. One of 15 children, she worked before the war started in domestic service. She married Michael Lynch from Kerry in 1938.
1: I brought my children home to Tipperary to my mother and father, and they reared them. Oh, I could have had him evacuated here, but no, I wanted my kids brought up in Ireland. My father and mother were number one. I wouldn't let my kids go to anybody else. And they would, back there, my little girl was three months, and she was five years and I brought her back. So she went, she, she was more Irish than she was English. Oh, it was hard for me at that time, very difficult, but I prepared her that way. I was sure she would be all right, and that we looked after. I to send a few pounds to my mother, Would help helped her. But they upkeep I send out little bits of clothes and that to And I think that I was happy that way. There was nothing. I wouldn't let him go anywhere here.
4: When we got out on this, the platform in Tonopandi and looked around at all the slag tips and heaps, it was dusk, it was evening. It was a very long train journey from Clacton, which was on the east coast, right over to Tonopandi in South Wales. It was a very long journey and we were all very, very tired and hungry. And... Um, we were taken in buses up to a school where I suppose you, it was rather like a slave auction. <laughs> uh, the people who were prepared to take the children were all there, and as they saw the children coming up onto a stage, they said, I'll take them and I'll take them. It, it was, it was rather like what you'd see on the sla- slave blocks and, and the roots thing.
3: <laughs> The streets of town were paved with stars. It was such a romantic affair. And as we kissed and said goodnight, a
2: nightingale sang in Barclays'
3: flag. Despite fears of an early and devastating German attack, none came. Over the winter of thirty-nine and spring of 1940... Londoners made the best of the so-called phony war. But then, in May, Germany invaded Holland and Belgium. The Dunkirk evacuation followed, and then the Battle of Britain. Although German aircraft attacked British airfields on the east coast during July and August of 1940, the cities remained untouched. But then, on the 7th of September...
1: I remember when they bombed the docks, and that went on for three days and three nights. So it was burning really bad to light the place up. And the shrapnel, you could pick it up that length in my backyard. The was so big. We used to pick that up and it used to be still hot, i would come out of the ack guns. You know, I mean, that went on for days. Then you might have a lull night, then you might have it during the day.
4: On the Sunday, September the 8th, The children who were actually billeted in the area that my mother and myself lived in, we used to go down to nine o'clock mass, down to the church. And on the way back, uh, a door opened and a woman ran out. And she, she said, oh, Mrs Foley, London is bombed. The people are all killed. And of course, all the children whose parents were in London immediately started to cry their eyes out and howl. My mother had to try and cope with them. All that day, there was tremendous trouble, misery with the children.
2: Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour.
3: Mary Burke from Kerr, County Tipperary, was 18 when she arrived at the start of the war to train as a nurse in the East London Chest Hospital at Victoria Park. The second eldest of four, she went to England because it was too expensive to train here.
0: The night we had the landmine on the hospital we had casualties in the mortuary and the hospital was built in the shape of a horseshoe with the mortuary in the centre and it was the mortuary that got the direct hit from our, from the landmine but fortunately nobody in the hospital was maimed or killed because the blast of the landmine went right up over the hospital walls and demolished streets around there was a, a convent of nuns completely wiped out.
1: When I lived in Kilburn at that time, there was a bomb dropped in uh, Bellside Road in Kilburn. And it demolished all the shops on one side of Belsize Road. And there were families that were never found. It was a landmine that came down there. And there was another night there they dropped a the landmine top of a pub at the bottom of Kilburn High Road. And just, the pub was called The Queen's Arms. And they had a dance going on upstairs there. And everybody got killed. And it took nine days to get the dead out
3: of it. Sheila Cavanagh was 20 when she arrived in London from Kenmare in County Kerry in 1940. The youngest of a family of eight, she went looking for work as a domestic but ended up in a factory making parachutes.
2: We just hear the falling of the bombs and all that. And where was that now? they say, and that was it. You, just got, you got used to it, you know. You go out and it was on. First, everybody was running to shelters, but in the end, everybody went about their business. We all went about our business as it wasn't happening. We might have pulled in near a shop, some sort of way to hide, while they were falling, but then you carried on.
3: It was a surface shelter that I went to, and it's one of the most cheering sights I've seen since the raid started. I've been round the streets most nights on one job or another, but I've never seen anything to equal this shelter for comfort and cheerfulness. Everybody was laughing and joking, and if there was any noise from outside, they started singing. Oh, be married,
1: for you.
0: You had that big building over your head. You were in the basement and you felt that no bomb could come down so far down in the earth to hit you. It was a lovely feeling, a cosy, warm, uh, safe feeling to be in the basement of our own hospital. So consequently we didn't stray very much.
1: The Anderson shelters. In the, guy, in the back gardens, we had them. They were buried down in the ground, and you just went into them. And sometimes we went in the ones in the street, and we'd have the priests in there. I always felt safe when they were in there. We used to have Father Donovan there, and a few of the priests come into the shelters there with the babies at one stage there. And they'd come in and go around, you know, and give a blessing and wanting another. Too. You always felt safe, you know.
2: You're down on the platform, right, right at the end of. The very long platforms here. Right at the end of the very long platform. And the train's just come in, a train on its way up towards Cockfosters. They've just heard it drop then. And the platforms themselves absolutely crowded as though it was a cup final. But it isn't a cup final because these people are taking shelter. And I must say, on the whole, they look pretty well satisfied about it. They've got.
4: You've gathered your eider down down and your pillows. And you went up to the tube station. Our nearest tube station was South Ken. And there was a policeman on point duty on the Fulham Road. And every night he used to look at us and say, take up thy bed and walk. But you were very, very glad because once you were down in the tube station, you didn't hear them. All right, it was crowded. You were given six feet of ground. And you put your bed on that but there was a canteen at the end with cups of tea and sticky buns. The trains kept coming in and going out all night until about half twelve, they finished, and they started again about half five in the morning. But you got to sleep, albeit in horrible surroundings, you know, no air, tube stations with crowds of people in them because they were fully occupied.
1: I never went into tube stations, never. I was too frightened too frightened to go into the tubes because there were so many things that happened in the tubes that they used to get flooded out if the guy had direct hit. because there was one in the button and that guy had direct hit, and it was never it was sealed off I don't think the bodies ever came out of that because they all got flooded that was in the whole button
2: but I used to sleep right through the thing the most of the nights and the landlady didn't like it they were all up, she said the warning was for me to get up they didn't want me sleeping there all night through it I didn't want to go to the shed. I wanted to have my sleep and go to sleep through and forget about it. I'd wake up and hear about all the bad night then, and I didn't know anything about it. So that's how I wanted it. it wasn't it the best, to sleep through For a while we must part
3: But remember me, sweetheart Till the lights of London shine on Shine
1: again. Well, he was called up. He just had to be called up. He had to join the other dad to get out of the country. But he had to join up because I lived here, and the kids, were the kids and that, in a home here. What could you do? Terrible at the time, didn't I? I mean, I was a young woman, young family. But these are things where they could grin and bear it, you know. I wasn't the only one. There was thousands like me the army money that time was nothing you had to go out and try to substitute that you know I mean to make ends meet
0: we'll meet again
4: don't know where don't know when but I know we'll meet again some sunny
2: War has at all times called for the fortitude of women. Even in other days, when it was an affair of the fighting forces only, wives and mothers at home suffered constant anxiety for their dear ones and too often the misery of bereavement. Their lot was all the harder because they felt that they could do so little beyond heartening through their own courage and devotion, the men at the front. Now this is all changed, for we, no less than men, have real and vital work to do. I was at the age, you see, I was 21, and they the were the first ones that were, had to sign on. They ended up working in the factory. In parts of the parachute, the opening, rip to open the parachute. I was on that all the time. It was pol- polishing up metal and cutting out a little plug to join it together and make it all smooth so that it, it would open the parachute, you see, that it would be properly done. It had all to be tested.
1: They called me up. I was conscripted into Halley Pages in Cricklewood. And we went in there and we walked with eight men that was exempt from being called up. And we used to put in the rivers in the Halifax f- bomber. And the men used to shoot him in with the guns,
0: I went to train in uh, diseases of the chest and lungs and heart, if you like, and I didn't see that we would be involved with nursing casualties, seeing that we weren't a general training school. But I was proved wrong because we were on call most nights for casualties from the surrounding areas. I was terrified at some of the injuries we saw, but you had to get on with it because that's what you were training for. Um, and it stood me in very good stead when I had to nurse the patients after the D-Day landings in 1944. We were used to uh, maimed limbs by that time.
4: I got my first job in January 43. I was 16, and I had got the results of my leaving certificate, which were extremely satisfactory. And uh, I started work, and it happened to be in a furrier's in the Brompton Road near Harrods. Uh, it was frequented by a lot of the uh, uh, royalty, who'd, of European royalty, who'd evacuated themselves from the various countries and taken up residence in London. In the Initially, it was very interesting, but as time went on, it became very boring. So, in the August, I left and took up a position in... The Reliance Rubber Company, who, who, they were engaged in war work and I was in the office and I was directed there by the Ministry of Labour. I didn't choose that myself, I was just directed there. It was definitely a lot more interesting than the glamour uh, trade. At that point I suppose we all felt we should be doing something to win the war and uh, selling furs to princes and princesses didn't seem that way to me. 1943 was very peaceful. Uh, Any activity you wished to follow you could do
0: if it was available. London was teeming with nightlife, and we didn't, as I said, get very much involved with it because we led a sheltered life up in the hospital. But any time that we did get out, we were part and parcel of that teeming life. It really was a wonderful place to be in. London was during the war. Uh, there were all nationalities there, and. Uh, when the, the raids weren't on every night, so we were able to get out on our off-Tuesday times. We went to the Hammersmith Palace, Joe Loss was always playing there. I loved dancing. Foxtrots and tangos and quick steps and waltzes. Englishmen were marvellous dancers. The Americans weren't very good. They brought the jitterbug with them. And uh, Irishmen, uh, they were all right in the Irish club, but... Um, there again, they congregated at one end of the hall like they do in Ireland and about 11 o'clock they might decide to come over and ask you to have a dance. They, they were all right, they were friendly but they weren't the best of dancers.
2: I used to stay indoors, the only thing is uh, was the night, uh, when there was a dance I went to Camden Town to a dance there. It was called the Buffalo. Everybody must have known it there. It was near the Camden Town Station Tube. It was very nice and very happy there. Very homely, we enjoyed it. The only thing is that there was you no meant to dance, but they were in the pub until the pub shut. And that could be 11 o'clock then. I don't know, was it earlier? And then they started and then it shut. We didn't have much time there. And we used to go to one in Tottenham Court Road to an Irish dance hall there. I don't know if it is still there. That was a very lovely dance hall, but more up than, than the Buffalo. The Buffalo was real, real Irish, really. The music would all be Irish, and sometimes we had the police in there looking for people. And uh, there was a great all everybody had to line up. And there were sometimes—I don't know whether I should say it—the the person would go in the toilet and hide. Somebody that came out of the army was in there, a deserter, and he was drunk and he was pushed into the lady's toilet, and uh, he was trying to get back out. And uh, my sister was in there and she pushed him back in and he got away with it, but he was drunk, he would have come out, and they were looking for him.
4: I, or I heard about Uncomonguela uh, in Hammersmith, in Brook Green. And my mother and myself decided we'd go up there one Sunday night to see what it was like. And we did... And we found a very, very pleasant atmosphere. Uh, the age group would have been older there. I was still the very young, under 18s. There was also a middle aged group of the people who had come over to England from Ireland to work in England during the war years, both men and women. And there was Irish dancing in a very big way there I had never actually seen Irish Kaylee dancing until then. I had learned step dancing but I hadn't seen Kaylee dancing we had wonderful St Patrick's nights Christmas nights uh, you, we had all night Kaylees because there was the, tra- the tube trains all stopped at 11 o'clock so you, if, you, if you didn't go home at half ten to get to Tube all the way, you would have to stay all night. So we did, and we used to have a play and a concert from about eight o'clock until half ten. And we'd go then and have supper, and then from about eleven o'clock till seven o'clock the next morning, we danced all night.
3: But if the people of London danced and sang through the nights of 42 and 43, life was far from easy. War work continued, and so did rationing.
4: Uh, chasing food, queues, long queues. If you saw a queue, you joined it, and you found out when you got to the top what they were selling. Uh, but you knew it had to be something or people wouldn't be queuing there. The rationing at that point had become very strict. Uh, things had been reduced I think we had two ounces of butter per person per week. I think we had eight ounces of sugar. We had two ounces of tea. Meat was sold by, uh, I think it was one and four pence worth a week you were allowed per person. Yeah, my mother and myself had two and eight pence worth of meat for the week. Um, Sausages weren't rationed, but you had to queue Miles, When I see the Russians queuing now for sausage, I think very much back on the war years when we queued for sausages.
0: In the hospital, we weren't affected in the sense that we didn't get any more or any less than anybody else. We got our rations, which were put on our plate, um, but we weren't allowed to have our breakfast until we had our raw carrot. And with Night Sister sitting at the end of the table, we had to make sure we ate that raw carrot. It was supposed to be good for our eyes in the blackout, they told us. But uh, I never got used to raw carrots. <laughs> we had them in a stew, but you wouldn't eat a raw carrot. <laughs> so, um got those most gorgeous smells through the wards one one night and word got around on the grapevine that um there was stew for supper. And I mean I I visualised my mother's stew with the carrots and the parsnips and the onions, you know, the real Irish stew. Then we went traipsing when the patients were settled for the night down to the dining room. And we had this lovely plate of stew put in front of us, a thick gravy. And when we went to eat, it was whale meat, and you couldn't... It was so tough. It was the most awful thing I'd ever eaten. But the gravy was nice. And we had... um. Dried potatoes, which were made with dried powder and water, boiling water added to them. We never saw real potatoes. But I'll always remember the smell of that whale meat coming up through the wards. It was good. I bought a lot of things on the black
1: market here. If the soldiers come home now, they'd be coming on leave, and they'd have a weekend pass, and they'd get vouchers for food, and the lads might be staying in hostels or somewhere, and they'd be selling their tickets. Well, they might sell them to you for a half a crown of five, Bob, in old money. And I'd buy them to be a bit extra for me, and it was very handy. So we'd buy the black market stuff here to get a bit extra. You had to, because otherwise you couldn't manage. Or somebody had soap powder and things and tickets on their book, you'd buy the soap powder. You'd only give them a few coppers extra for it, just to get the soap powder things for your washing.
0: It
4: was quiet right up through Christmas, uh, forty three, but early in 1944, we, we were surprised when the siren went and we found ourselves in the beginning of another blitz, a mini-blitz, nothing like as severe as it had been, obviously, in forty one, but sharp in... In the February it was we were in Brook Green one Sunday night when the siren went about, I suppose about nine o'clock, and uh, the secretary, who was another lad like myself, born in London of Irish parents, was giving the notices out for the week, and he just looked down the room and he said, "We're neutral. they won't drop anything on us." And we all laughed and continued to dance. And we had just come off the floor after dancing an eight-hand jig, when the warden, a warden, dashed up six flights of stone stairs, because the hall we had was on top of a very, very high building, and said, get these people out of here. So he stood there and organized us in twos, and we went down the stone steps And as we came to the front door, it was like, to me, a picture of hell, because I hadn't seen the original blitz. Everywhere was on fire. And eventually we were all accommodated in these big underground shelters, like a rabbit warren under the ground. And we stayed there until the all clear went about 11 o'clock. And when we came out, it was in a very, it was It was really bad. The tubes, there was bombs on the line so we couldn't get home by tube and the buses couldn't run. So we had to walk home from Hammersmith to Chelsea. We went home and the following night my mother was listening to Lord Haw Ha as she did every night and he said how did they like the bombing on Hammersmith on Sunday night? And don't think, Chelsea, you're escaping. We'll be along on Wednesday night. And they were. And it was absolute carnage. Uh, it was the next day, and the fires had been put out, but it was that he had they had dropped a stick of incendiary bombs on two blocks of Guinness's flats, and they had demolished it. And the people were trapped, and a lot of them killed I had been, I was told 80 I couldn't verify that, but I was told 80 were dead in the shelter underneath they were built underneath the uh, the grounds, and the bomb the buildings had come down on top of them. All the houses behind had been hit by a landmine, and they were gone too, and the ARP were di- trying to dig out. People, I was allowed through because I ha- my work was down on the riverfront, and I had to go through that way. When I got there, that was demolished virtually; uh, the windows were all gone, the walls, a lot of the walls were down from the blast. And uh, but we continued working.
3: In mid-April '44, the mini blitz ended. Londoners believed the tide was turning. Rumours of an Allied invasion spread.
4: England has become one vast ordnance dump and field park. In every wood and copse, in leafy dead-end lanes and side roads, often in private gardens, under quarries and embankments, there it all was. Trucks, ambulances, tanks, armoured cars, carriers, jeeps, bulldozers, ducks, vehicles of all kinds. Vast, really vast numbers of them. Right in the midst of it we were taken out, of, like our, out of
0: our hospital in I Harrow, where I'd gone to do well, my general training. training. There Can't were six of us, and uh, we didn't know where we were going, but we were told we were going to nurse casualties. And we picked up nurses from various hospitals in London, but we didn't know until they got on the bus as well that what was happening. And we travelled in an army convoy, and in the evening we arrived in Southampton, and we were given a hospital in Shirley Warren to staff and on June the 6th we were on duty at 6 o'clock in the morning and we knew that it was D-Day because they, we had been awake all night listening to all the armada flying out from the south coast of England and uh, the casualties started arriving oh, around 11, 11 o'clock and they were as they fell on the beaches in France with just a field dressing in position and uh, we treated them there we were on duty mostly 24 hours a day and we were a casualty clearing station, so as soon as they were able to be moved, they were moved farther inland. So there was a constant movement of patients inland, so that we were ready for the next lot. Uh, after D-Day, I nursed a terrible lot of Irishmen. We had a lovely old boy from Carrie Consure, but he died. He used to call me Scarlet O'Hara. He used to shout from one end of the ward to the other for Scarlet O'Hara.
4: And everybody was very excited, because the second front had opened, and... They were hoping that the war was coming to an end, and then on June the 13th, the first of the doodlebugs arrived. on the that night, we had the siren went, and as we had been doing, we had been going down to the shelter since the mini blitz started. We, we all had a cup of tea. It was eight o'clock in the evening and we all had a cup of tea, and we took the cup of tea down with us to the shelter, thinking that it was going to be over at about 10 or 11, as had been happening. But the all-clear never went, all night. And we didn't know what was happening. There was nothing that we could hear, but there was no all-clear. My mother went up with a friend at about 1 o'clock in the morning to walk around, and she asked the warden what was happening, and they said they didn't know. And she came back, and she has actually seen it. Obviously, a doodlebug going overhead, because she came back and she said to me, "There's something very funny." Because she said, "There's aeroplanes going along with all the lights on."
1: Well, we didn't know for a long time what they were. For ages, they were coming in here at night, and then you could hear them just like a child screaming coming through the skies. But you never knew what they were until they dropped. They were dropping along a lot of times before we realised what they were. I don't think this country even knew what they were. I remember one day I was in the house, and I was up in the top, my flash was in the top, and I ran all the stairs down, and when I got out the street, I had no heels in my shoes. I came down that quick. I could hear the screaming coming, and it had stopped, and I thought, I'll never get out. I'm full sure it's going to come down the house. You knew if they were low. They were. The sound was very... Uh, close.
4: And this one was very close. And I was looking around for somewhere to shelter because it was a residential street. And I ran up steps of a house. I rang and banged on the door, but there was no answer. I expect everyone was at work. And I didn't quite know what to do. And I just flattened myself against the door as much as I could because I I could, you know, it stopped and I knew it was coming down and it came down at the top of the road just by High Street, uh, by Kensington Gardens, High Street Ken, just before you came to uh, High Street Ken. The blast had gone the other way. I was very, very lucky. If the blast had come my way, I would have been affected by it, but it didn't.
3: With the transfer of the city's anti-aircraft guns to the east coast, the British military authorities had significantly reduced the effectiveness of the V-1s by August. But on the 8th of September, Hitler's most deadly weapon struck London, the supersonic V-2 missile. There was no effective defence.
1: The V-2s were terrible. They were really dreadful, they were. The things, you know, when they came down, everything was... A shambles, you know, I mean, it wasn't at one place. It the whole streets that wipe wiped out. People hadn't a chance. Just didn't have a chance with
3: them. Through the winter of forty-four and early spring of forty-five, the V2s and the V1s wreaked havoc on London. More than one and a half million people fled the city, twice as many as in 1939-40. But the Allied troops and Air Force were steadily making progress on mainland Europe. By March 1945, the launching sites had been overrun or destroyed. Hello, BBC, this is Thomas Cadet reporting from Supreme Headquarters. Yes,
2: I saw it. In the small hours of this morning, May the 7th, 1945, I saw the formal acknowledgement by Germany's present leaders, military leaders of their country's complete and utter defeat by land, in the air and at sea. The final act, General Jodl's signed admission of... This was indeed a deadly moment in our life and if it had not been for the loyalty and friendship of Northern Ireland we should have come to, we should have been forced to come to close quarters with Mr de Valera or perish forever from the earth. However with the restraint and poise to which I say history will find few parallels His Majesty's government never laid a violent hand upon them, though at times it would have been quite easy and quite natural. I hated him. And we left the De He was always talking about uh, the Irish and the, and the thing. The only time I remember during the war, he said once, the hatred in the Irish dies in my heart because they, they are walking side by side with every English soldier. He said that once and everybody looked at me in, in the factory when he said that. You know he to have the wireless on, and he said "The hatred for the Irish has died down in my heart. You see he was a hatred he hated the Irish didn't
4: he? well, I was very glad that Ireland stayed neutral. I would have hated to think that Ireland was going to be bombed like London and England was uh The people in England, of course, were very resentful of the fact that Ireland was neutral uh they 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 spoke about uh de Valera as de Valery and he was a little short of being Adolf Hitler to the ordinary man in the street in England. Um, actually the Irish were very useful to the English during that time because there was no employment in Ireland apparently and most of the menfolk emigrated to London and did a lot of the dangerous work in demolishing buildings and rebuilding uh, places that could be rebuilt, such as our own flats. We were, we were blitzed, but they were obviously able to repair the damage, and it was probably Irish people, Irish men, who did it.
1: Well, I thought it was great to keep Ireland out of the war. I think it was a great thing for a man to do. Because it kept a lot of Irish people living, we might be blown with bases for bases for this crowd here, wouldn't it? They'd have used Ireland for bases. The Germans could have come in and bombed us off. We'd be no Ireland now, would they? Only for whatever they had done for us.
3: When they saw the last all clear How happy my darling will be When they turn up the lights and the dark lonely. Only a Following Allied atomic bomb attacks on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, Japan surrendered on the 14th of August 1945. The Second World War was over.
1: It one of the greatest days of our life, it was. We'd parties, sing song. people brought out their pianos and music and played it on the streets. All the kids had parties. It was beautiful. It was something out of this world. We were so pleased. I went to church. I was so happy to think it was all over. I really did.
0: And the day we celebrated in in Western Supermary itself, there was a bonfire down near the beach and everybody shouted and hollered and sang and drank what any, any beer they could find. But I must tell you a very funny thing about Southampton. It was completely razed to the ground before ever the, the D-Day landings came because being on the south coast was so exposed. And um, any pubs that were left standing, they had no glasses. So you had to bring your own jam jar if you wanted a lager or a shandy. There were no no glasses in the pubs. You had to bring your own jam jar.
3: Japan has surrendered. So let us join in thanking almighty God that war has ended throughout the world.
1: To the next experience. An experience I don't think one will ever forget. I don't think I'd ever forget it. Now I mean there's some frightening times in it. Really frightening. Just the people that was killed at that time for nothing. As I often say now, if some of the soldiers that died for this country were to come out of their graves and see what they've fought for, to would be terrible.
4: I think war is futile. I am certainly very anti-war and always have been, Uh, even more so of latter days. Um, The Londoners, they really were very special people, and I'm sure the people of the other cities in England, And, and probably the people, the common ordinary man in Germany was probably a very special person also. They took the brunt of the Second World War The war ended. But before you knew it, big business had taken over. People who had, had gone out into the country at the start of the war moved back into London and you had London seasons, Deb seasons. Life reverted to its old former self. The class society returned. But the ordinary person are the descendants of the ordinary people who went through that war and suffered all those horrendous things. They are now the unemployed. They are now the coal miners who gave their all at that point to work for the war effort. And nothing has really changed. And the only people who ever suffer in war are, are the ordinary people who get called up, they're sent out to battle fronts, they are expendable.
1: Just you wait